This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Secrets of the Cannabis <laughs> Industry. And our author who joins me from California in the United States of America, Chuck Allen Jr. Welcome, Chuck. Well, thank you very much. This is a, a book that many would think uh, is a how-to book, but I don't think that's what you have written here. You have written a, a book that uh, you felt inspired to, to share stories. Tell us the background. Well, well yeah. Uh, you know, there's recipes for success uh, no matter what you get into. If you wanted to be a millionaire real estate agent, you have to find someone who will mentor you and follow uh, a recipe for that. Same way with a... If you wanted to make a million dollars in the restaurant business, you have to find out how the other millionaires did it. And I tell stories. This is a, a book about close friends of mine back in the 60s and 70s who were making fortunes, growing and selling marijuana, and I wanted to document their stories and agreed to change their names and uh, locations to protect their freedom. So these stories I write about are based on true events from the past, and uh, each chapter is a different story that will change your view on what you what goes on inside the cannabis industry. I also, um, at the end of each story, I write poems. I'm a poet, and uh, I got uh, great satisfaction out of writing poems. Uh, each, at the end of each chapter, I write a poem that has a connection to the storyline of what's going on in, in the uh, chapter, so that was fun. I also editorialize about the collusion between big business and and big government to keep marijuana demonized in the American mindset, and... Um, so today it's hard for all of us to tell the difference between propaganda and public relations. Yeah, up until the 1930s, it, it was not considered to be a bad product. Absolutely not. It's one of the most valuable products in the world. still is. And what was the uh, usage prior to the 30s? It was uh, medicinal primarily, or what was it? Well, you know, here's the thing. You know, people have been consuming the cannabis plant for medicinal purposes, and uh, for recreational purposes and for all thousands of different kinds of products, uh, sales, ropes, uh, oil, all kinds of uh, hemp products. But, um, yeah, it's one of the most beneficial plants on the face of the earth, and that's the reason why I got interested in it was because it was being demonized so much, and it didn't fit my experience of what was going on in the world, and I was wondering why our leaders were doing that. So I wanted to write, uh, so I wanted to do something bigger than myself, so I wrote this book. And how long did it take uh, to get all of the facts, details, and the stories together, Chuck? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. You know, I I wrote these short stories and then these poems in about a 20 or 30 year period of time back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I put these short stories and poems in a drawer and just kind of forgot about them. And then when I retired in 2009, I brought them back out, dusted them off, and and started uh, putting the book together. It took me three years, actually, to polish this book and uh, another year to actually uh, 
publish it. 169 pages. Yes, it's uh, less than 200 pages. It's a quick read. It's a fun read, and um, I think uh, people will enjoy it. Who is your target audience? Are you targeting people who are already familiar with the industry, or are you targeting people who may not have an understanding of what has gone on in the well, past? Well, you know, I think there's, uh, the stories in this book will, will benefit everybody. You know, uh, some people understand, some people think they do, and they really don't. And uh, the, the topic of the cannabis plant is uh, very controversial. It's right up there with politics and football, and uh, everybody's got an opinion about it. And this book is just uh, my opinion. And uh, so if you're confused, like most people are, <laughs> this book will help you. Which of your stories do you think is the most interesting or startling? I know you have one about a postal worker that had his own secret garden. Uh, what other, yes, that's what a other great stories? story. Um, Many people, just like this postal uh, employee, was supplementing his income and making uh, a, a lot of money doing that. But when I was uh, the one that affected me the most and almost influenced me to uh, quit real estate and uh, go into this uh, cannabis industry, which I didn't do because I was married and uh, uh, was a top producer in real estate. But I, I had this client who was looking for some raw land. And after being unable to find him what he was looking for, he finally told me what, what he was doing. And he was selling marijuana franchises, I guess is what you would call it. He was franchises. buying land, setting it up, uh, putting in these secret gardens in the barns or in the basements, and uh, teaching people how to do these indoor grows and producing uh, X number of pounds per month. And then he would come and sell the pounds and pay the guy. I think it was paying him $2,000 a month, $500 a week to run these gardens. And then at the end of the two years, he would give him the option to buy this business if he wanted to do that. And uh, he had created an entrepreneur business of doing these uh, these gardens, do you uh, these franchises do that you, were helping people do it. Do you feel like the story of cannabis is a relevant a story for today's uh, society, for, for, for today's oh, environment. I think the American people are tired of the war on marijuana and uh, would like to, for a prohibition to end in a favorable light. It's uh, my opinion that cannabis industry can be easily controlled without all the federal and state drama by simply decriminalizing the industry and then stepping back and getting out of the way. Let the buds find their way to the free marketplace like they've done for thousands of years. Stop arresting the consumers. Stop arresting the growers. And it just seems to me that our leaders want to control the industry every step of the way, just like a communist country. And let the buds be sold through private transactions, farmer markets, co-ops, or pharmacies, just like any other prescription or recreational drug. I just want to be clear and say that uh, I am not anti-government. I love my country. I just don't think that our leaders are making good decisions. And having said that, I, I want to say that I never thought I would live to see our leaders decriminalize uh, the marijuana industry. And I think that what they did in Colorado and Washington State by legalizing marijuana for recreational use was a huge step towards individual civil rights in this country. And I'm all for liberating the cannabis plant and liberalizing the cannabis industry. So, if you were to introduce this book to somebody, what would be the best way to describe the contents of your book? Oh, personal experiences of people who 
had the courage and determination to stand up on their own two feet and rule themselves. What I would like for the readers to take away from my book is uh, I think that the ability for us to stand on our own two feet and rule ourselves is rapidly disappearing. I believe that uh, growing and consuming marijuana is a pursuit of happiness issue. And this industry should not be controlled by big government or big business. I don't think they have any business being in the marijuana uh, industry. I think that taxing the marijuana industry is not going to save or fix the economy. Uh, last time I looked, I think we're still $17 trillion in debt to mm-hmm. a communist country. I believe that if big business and big government control the hemp industry, we would make progress in healing this country. Uh, the United States is the largest consumer of hemp products of any country in the world, and we can't grow it or manufacture it here in our own soil. So who negotiated that deal? Uh, and I think there's always going to be secrets in the cannabis industry that they're not going to tell us about. And I thank goodness that we still have uh, freedom of speech on the radio. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you, you, can, you can certainly talk about this subject without any, uh, any restrictions, for sure. Oh, yeah. There are other books out there probably dealing with cannabis. Uh, why is yours uh, different? Well, it's not really a how-to book. You know, it's, it's, um, if you read the stories, you'll find out how people just like you or me or anybody else are supplementing their incomes in an economy like this a little at a time. It's usually five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars at a time, and those kind of money really helps struggling uh, families, uh, you know, pay their insurance, pay their hospital bills, pay their food, shelter, and clothing. It really helps supplement their income. Now, uh, a lot of people. We're talking about taxing. Well, we got to tax it. And then a lot of people think that what's motivating the government getting into taking over the the uh, cannabis industry is because they're not paying their fair share of taxes. Well, I have a different viewpoint on that. Uh, people who make marijuana, uh, grow marijuana, make money, are, are paying their fair share. Every time they spend that money, they're paying state taxes, they're paying federal taxes, and there's 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 the they're contributing significantly to the economy. Now, if you take someone who walked away from a grow, for instance, with a quarter of a million dollars, which doesn't happen very often, but let's just say someone at the end of harvest time and everything was sold and the dust settled and they walked away with $250,000, just to take a look at that for a second. That money is going to be spent on what they call big-ticket items. They buy cars. They buy houses. They... Um, by technology. They take vacations. They invest in, they may even op- open up a new business, a new pizza parlor or ice cream shop, or uh, start their own entrepreneur business somewhere else. That money is spent every step of the way, state and federal taxes. And that money goes back into the economy in a significant way. And especially in small towns where it contributes back into the economy in small towns, especially in the wintertime when people have money uh, to go to the grocery store. That's my viewpoints on it. I mean, there's millions of people that hate the IRS. They think it's a corrupt system. They think it shouldn't exist in a free society because they're lawless. There's no strains. Even our own government can't tell the IRS what to do. They can't even tell them what to open up their books and tell them what to do. So there's a lot of people, millions of people, that don't pay taxes, don't want to pay taxes, and uh, there should be there should be a more fair fair way of uh, dealing with this than what our leaders are trying to do today. 
Chuck, thank you for joining me and sharing the background story to Secrets of the Cannabis Industry. That's the title of the book. Chuck Allen Jr. has been my guest. Chuck, where do we get copies of your book? You can find it um, on Amazon.com. There are major bookstores. You can go to my website, um, Secrets of the Cannabis Industry slash Chuck Allen Jr. Go to my website. There'll be a you can buy it uh, from my website. There's a wonderful uh, book video that you really should watch. It's really well done. It tells you a lot about the book. I don't know if you've got it or not, Jay. But uh, And where can, yeah, they, you, where can they locate that? It'll be on my website. It'll be super. on uh, YouTube. Super, super. All so, right, uh, folks. So there's lots of ways. Any, any bookstore can get it for you. You can download it off the Internet for three ninety nine onto your Kindle. So it's out there. Thank you for sharing that information. Again, and thank listeners. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. And listeners, you can uh, find the information on this particular book, Secrets of the Cannabis Industry, uh, by doing a search for Chuck under Chuck Allen, A L L E N Jr. You can find him there or also by the title of the book. Chuck, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, To End All War. And the author is Nicholas Lambros, and Nicholas joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nicholas. Hello, how are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, This is a book, historical novel, uh, much research, developing characters that are authentic of the time, and World War One, a hundred years ago, there's a significance in your mind of of that great war, which often is overlooked, isn't it? It's just kind of forgotten. We talk so much about World War Two. Well, you're right there, Steve. Uh, we we tend to uh, look harder at uh, wars like World War Two and Korea and uh, our revolution and the Civil War, of course. And so World War One tends to get. Uh, overlooked uh, uh, for its importance. Well, this book takes three characters into the Great War, two brothers and their younger sister, and follows them, and they have different war careers, and only two of them come home. It's an anti-war novel. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I, I, I suppose uh, when you look back in history and and, and, and the cost of wars, uh, our Civil War, World War One, and World War Two in particular, uh, these were extremely costly wars, and uh, I, I believe that war is never really an answer to uh, to problems between nations. They should find other ways to solve them, and uh, I don't see why that's uh, not possible. Tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Well, I was uh, a teacher in, in uh, public schools for a while, and uh, I guess I just had an interest in history uh, uh, for a long time. I've enjoyed reading uh, books that deal with it, and uh, I, I did go to an antique shop at one point with my wife. Uh, we were traveling, I think, up towards New England, and uh, I picked up a book and took it home, opened it up, and a letter fell out. And it was a letter written by a man named Monroe, and after reading it, I discovered that he was probably a chauffeur for this family that he drove up to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I I said at the time to myself, gee, that would make a great story. And it took a whole year before I went back there and started doing the research that uh, eventually uh, formed the background for the novel. Uh, Of course, the three main characters are all invented. And they come from a upper middle class family from the Baltimore area, and each of them, in their own way, they want to be involved. Now, was that characteristic of the time when really we weren't even in the war yet? Well, you're right. Uh, uh, we Wilson had actually been reelected on the slogan "He kept us out of war." And uh, we were an isolationist country. We we felt that our oceans protected us from uh, wars like those in Europe, which uh, seemed to be uh, causing a whole lot of trouble over there. And uh, uh, with his re-election, of course, we had stayed out of the war. Uh, the war itself didn't really get into uh, fighting uh when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia back in uh, July of 1914. It ended, of course, later, but we didn't get in until uh, uh, the middle of uh, 1917. Even then, we were totally unprepared. We had uh, no one trained uh, for for combat, and and so most of the folks that uh, we sent over there had to be trained by French and British uh, Instructors who had uh, experience in the war. And in fact, they uh, trained for just about a year before they got involved uh, materially in the war. So in order to really appreciate this war, the Great War, World War I, you need to see, as you put it, how this set the stage for the remainder of the 20th century. Now, give us your take on that. Well... It's it's an interesting point in history, uh, 1914. Uh, Things like the electricity and the telephone were were sort of new. Motorized vehicles were new. The airplane had been invented not long before, and so forth. So technology was at a point in time that was highly interesting. And, of course, it became uh, a part of that war uh, with uh, the inventions of uh, diesel-powered submarines and the uh, battleship called the Dreadnought and uh, all sorts of, uh, of uh, munitions were, were improved and the means of delivering them. So 
it's it's a highly interesting point in history and uh uh, beyond that, of course, its effects were, were long-lasting. Most historians never bothered very much about uh, speculating on its uh, results, but uh, when you look into history nowadays, you, you don't have to look very hard or for very long to realize its impact. And the shape of Europe really was changed uh, forever, and you have monarchies falling, and you have Russia becoming communist, and Japan uh, changing into a a militaristic uh, society, and then, of course, you have Hitler. Yes. Well, Hitler, of course, came about uh, probably as a result of two primary things. One was the Treaty of Versailles, the other was the Great Depression. He promised uh, the German people quite a bit and uh, uh, actually did improve the uh, the German economy uh, vastly from what they were. They were probably hardest hit by the Depression, in fact. Uh, but, uh, of course, we all know what that uh, eventually led to uh, with his uh, invasion uh, on September 1st of Poland, and that began World War II. And how do you see World War I related and connected to terrorism that we're experiencing today? Well, the, the Treaty of Versailles uh, uh, took hold of the Middle East and broke it up into uh, separate countries without regard to uh, either tribal or religious concerns. And so right away there was some contention that developed there. And, of course, the, uh, the promise of Lord Balfour to create a Jewish uh, uh, state was uh, finally realized in 1948 when Ben-Gurion became its first leader. And uh, that set uh, Jews right in the middle of that area, which uh, brought on all the related problems that we experience today, including terrorism. Well, let's talk about these characters. Let's uh, let's first start with uh, I guess he's your your main character, John Morris. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, John has a younger brother who uh, graduates from Johns Hopkins Medical School, becomes a surgeon, uh, eventually is uh, given a commission in the Navy. Uh, he is sent to. Uh, uh, Chaumont, uh, which was uh, general headquarters for uh, the Allied uh, American Allied forces, and uh, uh, he uh, meets uh, George Marshall, then a colonel, who assigns him to an aid station uh, up near the front on the uh, basis of finding out whether or not uh, that sort of care can be improved for uh, wounded, especially uh, those that needed emergency care. And his younger sister, their younger sister, who is uh, totally against the war, gets a a job with the State Department by sheer luck, and uh, she uh, eventually is sent to uh, France on the uh, uh, advice of her her superior, Mr. Mr. Polk, and uh, learns that she is uh, to become a counter-spy in a little town called Belfort there, right next to the Swiss border. So all of these characters get involved in the, uh, the war in their own way, and uh, uh, it, it, it's very funny because uh, I, I tell myself, I really didn't write this book, they did. I, I think I was listening to those characters and just writing down what they said, and, and they got themselves <laughs> in all the trouble. I didn't do it. They did. <laughs> so John John Morris fulfills his dream to become a fighter pilot. 
Yes, he does. He goes to Pal. Actually, he has some trouble there uh, because he uh, wound up in England at, uh, at first and, and uh, uh, had to find his way over to France. That was uh, uh, accomplished through the, uh, the embassy uh, in, in, in London and uh, winds up uh, in the wrong place, uh, in the wrong port, and so he misses his contact and uh, gets to meet uh, uh, some people in, uh, in Saint-Nazaire and uh, falls in love eventually with uh, a girl that he met there who operated a bakery. Anyway, it's a long story. He, he winds up in POW and, and learns how to fly and is eventually signed to the Lafayette Escadrille where he uh, fights uh, uh, German flyers over the front. Well, even though this is a historical novel, one of your reviewers talked about uh, how, you know, the, because of the research that you've done and explaining tactics and technologies of the war, it, it could be a, a, a really a, a history class in and of itself. Uh, well, I, I blame that on the fact that I was a teacher at one point, and, and actually I think one of my motivations was to introduce that war to young people who uh, uh, probably aren't uh, that aware of its impact. And uh, yes, it could be used in a classroom. Uh, uh, it, would teach, uh, it would teach them quite a bit about the, uh, the First World War and, and give them a sense or a good feel for what that was all about. And the old-fashioned sense of right and wrong, it's something you're advocating. Well, you know, they had just come out of the Victorian age at that point in time, and and, uh, things were quite different then. And uh, uh, There was a a kind of a sense of right and wrong when it came to this war, uh, especially after the sinking of the Lusitania, the Americans were... were finally personally affected. I think about 128 Americans died in that sinking. So uh, it, it, I, I think it should be more broadly known by not only young people but older people who uh, tend to forget uh, again the impact of that war. Well, it's filled with rich detail. It has gripping plot lines, a lot of suspense, uh, even rousing action so it is believable and true to to factual detail well i appreciate that uh steve uh, it's it's nice for, nice of you to say so uh, I, I tried to be as thorough as i could uh, uh in fact uh one of the complaints i got from uh, an early reader was that it had too much detail but uh, I, I think the detail lends it authenticity, and uh, that's really why it's there. So we we will relate to the characters. Well, there there are people that you might run into on the street. Uh, there, I, I think they come across as believable. Uh, how how do I put it? it, it, it if, if you read it, I think you'll understand pretty much what I mean. It's it's uh, they're they're real people. They they jump from the pages. They'll they'll grab your attention. Now you've dedicated the book. Yes. Yes, I dedicated it to the 
men and women of the armed services of the United States, and uh, I say without whose personal sacrifice and dedication to duty, America and many other nations would not be enjoying the freedoms that are so often taken for granted. And I believe that. Well, and you've had a sense probably uh, more than most because you've visited Europe and visited the battlefields and cemeteries of both world wars. That was quite an experience, by the way. Uh, of course, the uh, the main battlefield uh, that, that's uh, more widely known is the one above Omaha Beach, where we uh, invaded uh, Europe back in June 6th of uh, 44. Uh, just seeing those gravestones uh, and the vastness of that cemetery was... Uh, enough to humble a person and uh, for those who who are not able to go there and see it for themselves I recommend the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan uh, towards the end of that film the, the uh, main character Mr. Ryan visits the cemetery with his family and uh, uh, the pictures speak for themselves the title, To End All War, a historical novel, and we've been talking to the author, Nicholas Lambros. Nicholas, what's the best way to get your book? Well, you can get it through iUniverse, and I believe uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble as well are, are going to be uh, uh, producing uh, uh, copies for sale, so uh, it, uh, any reader should be able to buy uh, buy it either as an e-book, a paperback, or hardback edition. Uh, it should be available uh, in its finished or polished copy in a, in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. You're quite welcome, Steve. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is one that's very topical, important, and especially for those who are wanting to be in leadership because the title is Leadership in the Bible. A practical guide for today, the co-authors Paul Ohana and David Arno. David joins me today from the United States. Welcome to the program, sir. 
Thank you. Great to be with you. This is a uh, an important book uh, from a lot of uh, different perspectives. Uh, leadership is an important topic for individuals in business, but also those who are in church or in nonprofit related uh, endeavors. You specifically have focused on the Bible as your guideline. Why did you do so, and why did you use this title, Leadership in the Bible? Well, let's get to um, why we focus on the Bible first. You know, we live in a time when uh, really the only constant for many people seems to be change. The world is changing faster and faster uh, with every with every day that passes. And there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. There's a great deal of uncertainty. There are impossible kinds of decisions and choices that people are needing to make all the time. And in times like that, we have found that finding a source of constancy is actually a great value. So there are people looking for wisdom. People are looking for uh, sources that are tried and true and have really passed the test of time when they're looking for ways of approaching the difficult situations that they face today. So the Bible is not the only one of those texts around, but it's certainly one of them. And for people in the Western world, it, it is a, a foundational text. So it, it has stood the test of time in every respect. And it's, it's, a good, it's a good foundation to stand on when you look out at a world that's changing so quickly. Who are you trying to reach with your book? Is this one that's really designed for people in leadership in business, or will this transcend even that? It's definitely for people who are in uh, leadership positions in business. Many, many of the examples that we um, use in the book from the contemporary world are from the business world, in fact. But, um, you know, leadership really is, um, it's a role and it's a responsibility. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, whether you're in a corner office. So leadership really, you can be a leader in your family. There is a whole field of self-leadership. So I would say that the book is relevant for anybody who, who is taking responsibility. You can be taking responsibility for a large group, for, for a small group, for a church or synagogue group, for your family, or for yourself. So the book has application, I think, to anybody who's in a position of responsibility and has to make decisions. You've broken your book down into five distinct parts. One is earliest times, and then you highlight some very key characters that many people will recognize from biblical times. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and uh, then you have a parting wisdom area. In chapter one, you deal with getting off to a good start. How would you describe that, and what is your concept there? It's fascinating. If you look at the creation story from the point of view of a psychologist and a management consultant, and that's what's, <laughs> that's what's unique about the book, you have a, a, a team of, a, of uh, unusual leaders that's taking you through very familiar territory. So what do you see? You see that God is creating the world in six days. And you also know that the option of creating the world instantaneously, snapping the fingers or just all at once, was certainly an option. But what you see is a very deliberate process, step by step. And there's evaluation. After each step, God steps back and says, it's good. Once he says, it's very good. But you get a um, seven times a variation on that theme of it is, it is good or very good. So what do you learn from this? Because in a sense, you know, we are all 
creators of worlds, whether that world is a very large world or a very small world, a very big company or a very small family. We all are creators of, of the things around us to, some, to a greater or lesser extent. How do you approach the beginning of a big project, the beginning of a big creative effort? So what we're taking away from the story is something very simple. Do it in a very deliberate way. Don't think that you can get it all done by snapping your fingers all at once. That's not what God does. Be planful, be deliberate. And when you have a huge project, break it into smaller pieces and evaluate. God is evaluating how the work is going at every single phase. And it's a very, very sound principle of management. After every phase, step back and say, how far have we come? How's it going? So it's a very, very basic lesson. Um, but it's one that's very, very easy to overlook. We're living in a world now where you know everything should be done yesterday. And what you can get from this story is take your time, step by step. And the other thing that's very interesting too is, I mean, God is doing this all alone. But imagine that this was a team project and, and God's the boss, the manager in charge of the whole thing. God would be saying to the team, it's good, looks good, looks very good. So the idea is if you're in charge and you're the manager and you've got a team that you're working with, give them feedback, not just when the whole project is done, but each step of the way, give feedback. And you see the value of positive feedback. There's a whole literature on quick wins. You, when, some, when you can put a quick win on the board, when you can tell your team, hey, great work, that motivates the team to get to the next step with great energy and great confidence and great appreciation. So you've already set the ball going in a great direction just by saying it's good. So those are some very simple lessons that you can learn from this story. But those are those are not the usual lessons that people take from reading the creation story. This true. And that's why I loved writing the book with Paul. Faulty communication is an obstacle that many of us have to overcome. What is your concept or what is your approach to overcoming those types of uh, communication errors? Again, we, we look at a story that is usually used to teach a completely dis different lesson to learn something very important about communication. The story that we learn, uh, that we look at, is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what you see, and you have to read the story pretty carefully here, what you see here is something like the game of telephone, where what the message starts from God to Adam and contains certain pieces of information. And by the time Eve states that same, supposedly the same message to the serpent, the, the, the content of the message has changed. And you, you, this requires some careful reading. So God basically says to Adam, do not eat of this, the fruit of this tree. And when the serpent speaks to Eve, Eve says to the serpent, well, God said not to eat of the fruit or not to touch it, lest we die. So there's a, the, Eve adds an extra prohibition. Mm -hmm. And you might say, big deal. But <laughs> here's, here's what, what an old rabbinic uh, legend tells us about how did this this how did this act how did the fall actually occur in this garden? And this old rabbinic legend goes like this: the, the serpent heard what Eve said, and the serpent, the wiliest of all animals, knew that that wasn't exactly the message. And just when he heard Eve say, "And if you touch the tree, you'll die," the serpent pushed Eve against the tree. And she didn't die. And so the serpent said, look, you didn't die from touching it, so you won't die from eating the fruit either. 
So the point is that this little gap, this little addition in this case in the chain of communication leads to disaster. It and does. We, see, we see in the world today how important it is when you go to have any type of surgical procedure in the hospital. They'll be asking your name 20 times. They'll be asking you what procedure you're in for mm -hmm. because with all of these checks and double checks, they still occasionally operate on the wrong limb or the wrong patient. So the point is, when you're in the position of responsibly communicating a message of real importance, two things. Make sure that the person that you're talking to has heard the message. Ask them to repeat it back to you. It doesn't have to be verbatim, but in their own words. Did they get the essence of the message? Are they adding to it? Are they taking away from it? If God had done that with Adam, maybe Adam would have done that with Eve. And, you know... Maybe, who knows, maybe know. we would still be in a better place. That's, that's even good advice. In the uh, family situation, you're dealing with teenagers, and often they hear one thing but do something else. So the, right. even that communication idea or strategy is an excellent one. Right. It's a, it's a very classic approach to uh, making sure that the message is heard properly. You, it, you remember the submarine movies <laughs> yes. and this whole message, this whole way of, you know, all ahead, right, full, all ahead, right, full. The, the government, the Navy, developed this to make sure that there would be as few communications errors as possible. So it's possible to reduce these errors greatly. Maybe not 100%, but very greatly, if you're careful. One other thing that is important about your book, and I'll say this on behalf of my listeners, you don't just talk to guys. You also talk to women in leadership. That's an important aspect of leadership, isn't it? Well, for sure, um, the talent pool in the world uh, today is <laughs> composed of half men and half women. And any company that is going to want to succeed is going to need to have the, the talent of the whole human race reflected in its leadership, on its board, on its, in its highest levels of management. So for sure. And, you know, you can, you can see that women are in, in very important positions in key places in the Bible. Throughout the Exodus, in the beginning of the story of the Exodus, there are five women who really turn, the, the whole story turns around them. Uh, we don't know the name of Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus, but we know the name of some of these women who, who defy Pharaoh <laughs> uh, and wind up saving Moses. Phenomenal. So uh, very, very powerful roles that they play. And the lesson here is that you want to succeed, you want to, um, let's say, um, get to a better place. Uh, <laughs> you got to have the participation of everybody who's, who could be on the team. The title of Chapter 10 is Hope Wins. That's an important topic for you to uh, focus on, isn't it? It's critical because uh, <laughs> you, there's no way of coping with, with all of the ups and downs in life without hope. And I, I'll just give you a, f a couple of things, uh, <laughs> important takeaways to think about in terms of what hope means. Hope means you remain humble and uncertain no matter how strong your hope is. Hope means that you keep on going, even though you feel like giving up, you feel like freezing up. It means you keep going, because in the going emerges the, poss the new possibilities uh, from which hope, real hope can emerge. So here there's, a f there's an, another very important story. It's a kind of chilling story, in a sense, um, the story of the binding of Isaac, when God says to Abraham, take your son your beloved son Isaac, to a place that I will show you and sacrifice him as an offering to God. And usually this story is 
it's brought to show the importance of obedience. And Abraham is praised in most circles because of his obedience. We think that there's a whole other lesson to take from the story. And the lesson is the lesson of hope and the power of hope. Because it's very clear uh, that if you look at Abraham's character, that he, this is a man who values human life. He argues with God to protect the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a person who, who doesn't take innocent life in some kind of casual, wanton way. So he is in a, he's in a very, very difficult dilemma. Valuing the life of his son on the one hand, the love of his son for his son, and valuing the relationship that he has with God. So it's, it's like this impossible conundrum. And this is the kind of situation, it may not be, you know, this exact situation, but the, the impossible situation. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can't go forward, you can't go backward. Either choice seems to be fraught with terrible, uh, terrible, terrible consequences. So there's no way out. And that's the kind of situation that leaders find themselves in too often. And what you can learn from Abraham are a few things. And we look at, we look at uh, this whole notion of hope through the thinking of an amazing French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, who wrote about hope in 1942 when France was being occupied by Nazi Germany. So a very, very dark time in French history. And Marcel said that hope is situated with the, within the framework of the trial, not only corresponding to it, but constituting our being's veritable response. And how does the story of the binding of Isaac start? And God tried Abraham. Mm -hmm. So immediately, Abraham is in this, this, this situation of the trial. And he responds in some very amazing ways. First of all, he's humble. He's not knowing for sure what the outcome is going to be. How could he possibly know? He remains in a state of movement. He's moving forward all the time in the hope that in movement, new possibilities will emerge. And they do. Abraham finally gets to the top and to the, the end of the tail, opens his eyes, and there's a whole new possibility. And to hope means behaving as, you can, as if you can see the outcome that you want. When Abraham is asked, where is the lamb? He said, God will provide the lamb. And Abraham tells the youths that he takes with him to the mountain, you stay here with the donkey, and Isaac and I will go up, we will pray to God, and we will come back. We will come back. Abraham has a vision of what he wants to happen. And if you don't have that vision, you really can't have hope. You've also focused on primarily Old Testament characters. This will be of wide appeal, I'm thinking, because you've done so. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this, this, these are stories that are foundational to the Jewish religion, uh, Christian religion, and many of these stories are, are in the Koran as well. Fascinating to know. Whole possibility. Absolutely. And in a couple of sentences, share with my audience why they should get a copy of Leadership in the Bible. We all are facing very difficult decisions in life every day, whether we're uh, at home, whether we're at work. And what this book does is it looks at 40 very familiar stories in the Bible, and it, it gives you a, a way of thinking about the, the stories in a new way and a way of linking the wisdom in that story to the de decision that you face in your life that's facing you, whether it's how to communicate more effectively, how to hold on to hope, how to launch a project more effectively. It will give you some very time-tested wisdom, wisdom from the Bible and wisdom from a management consultant and a psychologist, too, about how to make the best decisions you can. 
and a way to help you manage your life more effectively at work and and at home. So some great, great ideas in here. The title of the book, again, is Leadership in the Bible, a Practical Guide for Today. Our co-authors, Paul Ohana and David Arno. David has joined me today to share his perspective on this particular book. David, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Well, the book is available online at this point at um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and iUniverse. Possibility that you will have a website developed soon. Yes. uh, The website is um, leadershipinthebible.com. No spaces. No spaces. Leadershipinthebible.com, the title of the book. Thank you for joining me today. Is there another book in the works between now and perhaps the next year or so? Not sure. We have some ideas, but right now we're putting a lot of effort into marketing this book. We'd like this book to be uh, a great success uh, so that the next one will be even more successful. (laughs) Fantastic. 262 pages of great information and ideas. Leadership in the Bible, a practical guide for today. David Arno has been my guest. Sir, thank you for joining me today. A great pleasure. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.